it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes, Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash murder. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-U-R-D-E-R. ZipRecruiter.com slash murder. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Norco 80 tells the story of how five heavily armed young men, led by an apocalyptic born-again Christian attempted a bank robbery that turned into one of the most violent criminal events in U.S. history, forever changing the face of American law enforcement. Part action thriller and part courtroom drama, Norco 80 transports the reader back to the Southern California of the 70s, an era of predatory evangelical gurus, doomsday predictions, megachurches, and soaring crime rates, with the threat of nuclear obliteration looming over it all. In this riveting true story, a group of landscapers transformed into a murderous gang of bank robbers armed to the teeth with military-grade weapons. Their desperate getaway turned the surrounding towns into war zones. When it was over, three were dead and close to 20 wounded, 
a police helicopter was forced down from the sky, and 32 police vehicles were destroyed by thousands of rounds of ammo. The resulting trial shook the community to the core, raising many issues that continue to plague society today. From the epidemic of post-traumatic stress disorder with within law enforcement to religious extremism and the militarization of local police forces. The book that we're featuring this evening is Norco 80, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. With my special guest, journalist and author, Peter Houlihan. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Peter Houlihan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. This is one incredibly exciting book, I have to say. Let's um, start right off from the beginning, as we described in the introduction, or I did. Let's talk about what somebody in California, what these two people, what many people saw, besides George Wayne Smith and Christopher Harvin, but what other people saw, but people born in the 50s, as you write, tell us about the, the violent crime rates. Tell us, take us back to Southern California of the 1970s and up to this date in 1980. What did these people see? Sure. Um, the both the time and the era in which this, or the time and the place in which this. Uh, happened or uh, had an influence on um, bringing this about, this bank robbery. Um, they, uh, the bank robbers are all from Orange County, California, a suburb of Los Angeles, and, um, and they came of age in the 1970s. And uh, for George Wayne Smith, there were a number of things that, that uh, influenced him and kind of propelled him towards this uh, bank robbery. Uh, one was the very uh, aggressively evangelical born-again Christian movement that began in uh, Orange County, California in the 70s and then swept throughout the country. It was known as the Jesus Movement, and it was uh, these were youth ministries that were uh, revolved around the Book of Revelation and end times theology. And at an early age, uh, George became involved in Cavalry Chapel, and at that time, Cavalry was... Uh, Really, uh, based on uh, <clears throat> based on the rapture and uh, you know the, the the second coming. So um, George, at an early age, believed that uh, the apocalypse and the cataclysmic events and the collapse of society that would lead up to it was imminent. And um, Calvary Chapel really pressed the uh, pressed the idea that uh, the rapture could come at any moment. And um, that was certainly uh, for George to have been in Orange County as a as a young man um, in the 1970s uh, was uh, really um, <clears throat> really brought that about. Um, the other was that uh, you know if, if you ha if you're in that front uh, mind frame and then you're on the lookout for current events that you can match up with uh, Revel uh, Revelation prophecy. Um, sure. Southern California of the 1970s and most everywhere in the 1970s was a place you sure could find it. Um, there were a lot of doomsday scenarios that were bandied around in the 70s, uh, whether it be asteroid strikes or massive earthquakes or population bombs. Um, and also there were, as you say, uh, you know, crime rates that would be almost unimaginable today. And um, a lot of the uh, ideologies of the uh, of the 1960s really turned ugly in the 70s. Um, recreational drug use became drug abuse. Um, you know, free love became unwanted pregnancies. 
there was uh, uh, some really startling uh, events like the Jones- Jonestown um, uh, right. mass suicide, uh, the uh, Symbionese Liberation Army. There was a lot of revolutionary groups, especially in the early 70s, that were uh, bombing things and trying to bring down society. Uh, so when George looked out at the world, he could see a lot of uh, events in the United States that looked like a social collapse, uh, Babylonian-style social breakdown, um, and also internationally. The uh, towards the end of the at the end of the 70s and into the early 80s, there was the uh, Iran hostage situation. There was war in the Middle East, um, and as you say, the um, the thing the existential threat hanging over all of it is really nuclear war. And uh, right out of high school, George Wayne Smith went into the Army, and he was trained as an artilleryman and, and uh, stationed in Germany, and he was trained on tactical battlefield nuclear weapons. And uh, that was what really made the 1970s dangerous, uh, especially for the possibility of nuclear war, was this proliferation of battlefield nuclear weapons. Um, you know, once you... Uh, once you use one of those, it's not hard to imagine escalating into the intercontinental ballistics missiles that would uh, bring along obliteration. So uh, when George looked out at the world, a lot of things matched up. And as in terms of how it all might end, uh, nuclear war was something that was uh, uh, not hard for him to imagine and, frankly, not hard for others to imagine. Um, and I'll just briefly talk about uh, George's um, – George was the one who really planned – this bank robbery and recruited the others. He had a uh, roommate. Uh, they owned a house together, Christopher Harvin. And Christopher Harvin was a bit of a survivalist, and his idea of how the uh, how the uh, end might come for the and the collapse of uh, social order and lawlessness was those doomsday scenarios I had mentioned earlier, um, but of a kind of natural disaster or man-made rather than uh, something that would come from God. And uh, and also included nuclear war, but you know, asteroid strikes and particularly uh, and, and things like that, population bombs. But really, he believed in something called the uh, Jupiter effect. And the Jupiter effect was a book that was uh, about a alignment of planets that was going to come in 1982. It did come, in which the planets would be aligned all on the opposite side of the sun, and um, <clears throat> they would affect gravitational pulls. It would trigger volcanoes earthquakes and things like that. And uh, both George and Chris uh, had, uh, had uh, their, their dates, and George's was uh, the apocalypse or the rapture would come before the end of 1980. And for Chris, as I say, it was looming ahead just a year and a half ahead. So sorry, that's a rather long answer, but <laughs> certainly all those, uh, all those different factors uh, fed into George, George Wayne Smith and Christopher Harvin uh, kind of looking that they needed to uh, prepare for, uh, for lawlessness, social breakdown, in which uh, only the well-armed and well-funded and well-prepared would survive. You talk about the difference in the characters between Chris Harvin and uh, George Smith, uh, certainly in high school and and then in the military. Uh, Tell us about that before you talk about the situation that they found themselves. Both had met uh, at the landscaping gig that they had, but now what was their current situation? So tell us about that. Yeah, they, uh, there were other factors that uh, kind of uh, triggered them to take this action at the time. Um, they really were two different personalities, um, and they had both suffered downturns in personal fortune. Um, 
leading up to this. They had both lost their jobs as landscapers uh, for the the city um, parks department. Um, They had breakups in their marriage. Um, They were running out of money. Um, George is uh, George had this kind of a psychological makeup that may have uh, uh, destined him to, uh, you know, be involved in some sort of event in which people would hurt or die. And that was he had this grandiosity about him, this idea that what he wanted and what he needed was more important than everyone else. Um, he wasn't the guy who set out to kill people. In fact, George had kind of channeled this grandiosity and this idea that he could save everybody around him for the good up until then. Everyone around him um, would say that he's a great guy. I mean, and he was. I mean, up until then, he's a guy to help you out, do anything, lend you money, save your soul. He, uh, he was pretty aggressively evangelical himself. Um, yeah. And so when he looked at his life and saw – what you and I might think of as a, a downturn and a, a temporary downturn in fortune, uh, he looked at as a absolute disaster. It was a cognitive dissonance between the, the uh, person he thought he was destined always to become, the great person, and um, a guy who was pretty much down on his luck, had lost his family, was about to lose his home, and everything else. And these guys are in their, uh, you know, they're 27 and 28 years old, so that's their age when they start to. Uh, take this on and when they when they commit this crime uh chris harvin's just kind of a troublemaker you know he's a guy kid who'd do anything on a dare he was always getting trouble at school nothing horrendously malicious nothing violent neither of them had any criminal record um those two and um and then they had this downturn in fortune and uh in their personal lives combined with this idea that uh you know you could have a cataclysmic events looming in the future and they thought they needed some money to address that and, uh, and and prepare themselves. Now, you talk about their compound at Miraloma. Tell us the proximity to Los Angeles, but also tell us uh, about the nature of this little community and the, different, and the, and the distance between Norco and, and other communities. Tell us where it's situated, and tell us a little bit about this Miraloma and my idea that it's somewhat of a compound in their mind. Yeah, it's a modest compound. Um, The robbery itself took place in Riverside County, California, and um, eventually went into uh, the pursuit, went into San Bernardino County. This is an area known as the Inland Empire. It's roughly 40 miles uh, east um, of Los Angeles, still part of the L.A. metro area. Really gritty, blue-collar area. A lot of uh, warehouses. There's a steel mill out there, the Kaiser Steel Mill. Um, Mira Loma is... uh, semi-rural, um, a, a gritty uh, neighborhood of, uh, it was unincorporated area, so that the uh, the zoning laws weren't great, um, kind of uh, some ramshackle houses out there, um, but mostly a, uh, a relatively quiet, uh, you know, suburban neighborhood. Um, again, you call it probably lower working class, um, blue collar. Um, and they had bought a house there and uh, together, and uh, it was a modest uh, stucco ranch with a, you know, just as I say, a small compound because it was uh, really just just a little over a quarter acre. And uh, but as they uh, as they prepared not just for the bank robbery, but again to uh, to put them in a position to survive uh, the apocalypse. Um, they uh, they began to put barbed wire up around the perimeter uh, walls of their backyard. 
and uh, put, uh, nailing carpet tacks. So if anybody tried to come over that perimeter, they'd tear their hands up. And they built, mm-hmm. uh, they dug a pit and a <clears throat> tunnel that went from their backyard underneath their garage so they could either escape the house or use it as a bunker. And uh, and they also, they'd always, they were guys who liked guns, but uh, they really began to ramp up and uh, kind of put together an arsenal at that point. So they were on, as you write, they're in desperate need of money. Um, but Chris and, and George, even though they're really good friends and they have a lot of things in common and they have this shared apocalyptic future uh, belief, um, tell us about George's initial plan and uh, introduce Russell Harvin and Manny Delgado. Who are these people and where do they come from? Um, who brings in who? Uh, certainly. Um George Wayne Smith um, first had an idea that he was going to rob a, a Denny's restaurant, and Chris said, "Well, if you're going to," Chris Harvin said, "Well, if you're going to rob a anything, you might as well rob a bank." And then uh, right. George began to start to plan that, and um, he uh, he got more and more serious, the more and more desperate he uh, he became. And Chris really was kind of reluctant about it, but George is a very persuasive, a very articulate guy. And um, so he began to uh, really pressure Chris to do this, um, to, to, to rob a bank. And I mentioned George's grandiosity. Well, that extended to his plan to rob the bank. Um, Chris also mentioned that, you know, he wasn't going to do it unless they were, uh, unless they were well-armed when they went in. But um, George put together a rather elaborate plan in which he, uh, he would address every contingency. And that included being armed to the teeth with uh, civilian versions of military-grade weapons. Weapons. These are, um, you know, AR-15s, um, Heckler, HK-91s, HK-93s. These are 223 caliber weapons, and uh, George was uh, packing a 308, which is an absolute cannon, and um, thousands of rounds of ammunition, high-powered, uh, uh, high-capacity magazines, 40-round um, magazines that they taped together jungle style. So there was three of them taped together. You could pop out, flip over, put it back in. Um, so they started to put together this grand plan, but, um, you know, you get a grandiose plan like this, an elaborate plan, it also almost guarantees that, uh, something will go wrong. And it did. They needed, uh, they decided they needed five people to pull this bank robbery off. And so, uh, Chris Harvin recruited his younger brother, Russell Harvin. And Russell was just, a he was, he was going nowhere in his life. Um, he was, uh, diabetic, but he was, uh, just kind of hanging out at home, um, working odd jobs, uh, smoking a lot of weed. And um, when his brother uh, asked him if he wanted to do it or, or told him he should do it, uh, Russ just kind of went along with it. Russ didn't really think things through. Um, Russell's about uh, 26 years old at the time, 27 years old at the time. Um, then uh, George also recruits Manny Delgado. Manny Delgado was only 21 years old, and they knew each other from, again, working as landscapers at the Parks Department. And uh, then Manny um, recruited his little brother, 17-year-old Billy Delgado, to be the getaway driver. And Manny and uh, Manny and um, Billy were from very different backgrounds. They were really from the barrio in uh, in Orange County, from really tough neighborhoods. Um, and they all had their kind of different reasons for wanting to do it. Manny had one child and another one on the way. His wife was nine months pregnant. Um, he, he felt he needed money. Uh, Billy had kind of a hopelessness about him. He had rheumatoid arthritis and believed that he wouldn't be able to walk past the age of 25. And uh, 
Russell Harvin uh, somehow got it in his head that his diabetics, <laughs> his diabetes would uh, would doom him to death before the age of 35. So they all kind of felt like they had nothing to lose and a kind of a, a, a bit of a desperation about him. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's also, uh, I know we mentioned it, but it's important to know for our audience how much rejection these people had from women uh, that had their children in their lives, three out of the four that we just mentioned. Um, talk about that a little bit because I think it's really important. Yeah, they, um, uh, George's, uh, all of them married very young, but George, George married at age 18, right? out of high school, and that marriage quickly collapsed when he went off to Germany. He was then married again to a woman who was uh, 10 years older than him, and uh, when they had a child, um, really their marriage started to fall apart. George was still concentrating on stockpiling weapons and talking about the end of the world, and his wife was trying to raise a baby, and um, and so that uh, marriage also fell apart uh, just months before um the uh, the bank robbery and again George had this view of himself as he was going to save everyone around him that he was a really good and responsible guy and up until then he was and um, and couldn't understand why this had happened um, Christopher Harvin's uh, married at age 18 and by age 27 he was uh, his his marriage was falling apart he was not being able to see his kid as much as he wanted to um, Russell Harvin married at age 18 and uh, uh, that wife ran off with another woman several years later. Um, you know, she was actually uh, married to another man and had a had a um, had another uh, a, a child. And um, but Russ still wore their wedding ring. Yeah. Um, and so you know they were uh, these guys were uh, definitely kind of brokenhearted and um, and uh, a lot of other bad things happening in their lives. You write about the incredible scene in this little place um, at a place called Dave's where they get their weaponry. I know you mentioned some of the incredible weapons that they had. It's beyond hunting and beyond anything and very, very military um, type weaponry. Um, but you talk about Dave and, and this going back to Dave. So I think it's very incredible cinematic scene in here, but Tell us about them going to get weapons, and what is their idea about spending the last bit of their money to get these weapons? Yeah, um, yeah that, that's that's kind of one of the contradictions. Um, 
is uh, that they did take the last few thousand dollars they had and started to ramp up. Um, as I say, they'd always had, you know, handguns around and uh, nothing, nothing crazy, you know, just kind of people who were, they used to take them up hunting and things like that. Uh, you know, uh, George had a, a carbine, same sort of, he, he uh, single, you know, single shot, but the weapons that they began to buy as they moved closer to this were, were the, uh, again, the military um, grade weapons, civilian version, meaning they're semi-automatic rather than fully automatic. But um, they were just, the, all of these weapons were legally purchased. Um, they were not nearly as prevalent back then as they are now. These uh, semi-automatic, uh, what's commonly referred to as assault rifles. And um, they were around, they were legal, but they weren't, uh, but they were not uh, nearly as prevalent. And uh, Dave's Gun Shop was just one of the places they purchased it. And uh, they, they would uh, go to different gun stores, but... Uh, uh, in the course of a week, um, George Smith walked into a Dave's, uh, I think he went three times and purchased uh, two uh, semi-automatic uh, weapons, uh, a 223 and AR-15 and a uh, Heckler & Koch HK-91, which, as I say, is a 308. And 308 is a round that's three times as big as a... Uh, as a 223, um, they're not an animal in the world. They can't be brought down with one single shot from a 308 from a half mile oh. away. And um, yeah, uh, the guy at Dave's was starting to wonder kind of what was going on, and he joked to a uh, semi joked to George Smith, um, "Gee, what do you need all these for? Are you going to start a war or rob a bank?" And George just laughed. Now, part of the plan, tell us about the plan itself, what George had come up with and what they had all agreed to, and then uh, what did they do in preparation? You talk about uh, the anarchist cookbook that they had access to. Yeah, the other uh, part of their arsenal, in addition to each, all five of them carrying one of these uh, high-powered semi-automatic rifles and thousands of rounds of ammunition, is uh, they used the anarchist cookbook to... Um, to make homemade fragmentation grenades. These are made out of beer cans with an incendiary device in the middle, a, um, a detonation device in the middle, and uh, and then shrapnel around them, and they tape them up in uh, tape them up in mask, uh, electrical tape, um, duct tape, and uh, they had uh, fashioned these with uh, some of them on dowels so that you could launch them out of the uh, barrel of a shotgun uh, up to 100 yards. So you light the fuse and you can launch it out of a shotgun. Um, or you can just, you know, toss them. Um, they had a couple dozen of these. They had Molotov cocktails, um, wine bottles filled with uh, leaded gasoline. Um, so once they had all these weapons, um, and again, all of them were, had one of these rifles on them. All of them had uh, one, one or more um, handguns on them. And uh, the plan was this, um, and this is this is indeed what they executed the day of the uh, the bank robbery, which was uh, Friday. Uh, uh, May 9th, 1980, uh, and um, the, in the morning, three of them, uh, the Delgado brothers and Russell Harvin, went to a shopping mall 20 miles away, the Brea Mall, and they stole a van at gunpoint, and they taped up the uh, the owner, Gary Hakala, and put him in the back of the van so he could not report it stolen. They then, uh, Chris, um, Chris and George, and uh, met up with them. And uh, they still had Gary Hackler taped up in the back. And they went and put a um, diversion bomb underneath a gas main a mile away. And this was uh, six beer bottles filled with gasoline with a detonation device in it. 
and um, they put that underneath a, a gas main at a uh, um, <clears throat> behind a strip mall, and uh, it did indeed go off, um, uh, and uh, but it did not ignite the gas main. A, a passerby uh, um, uh, put it out with a fire extinguisher. Um, but the the plan was that obviously that once that went off in this massive explosion, every first responder, including every cop, would be, be would be on their way to that, and then they would hit the bank. And um, the bank that George eventually chose was the Security Pacific Bank in Norco, California, which borders Mira Loma. Again, we're talking just about the center of a uh, Riverside County or uh, near Riverside City, um, and. Uh, uh, he, uh, George, chose his own bank. So the bank that yeah. they robbed was George's bank. And um, yeah. and they put on uh, ski masks, military ponchos, and uh, they waited for that, that, that uh, incendiary, uh, for the uh, diversion bomb to go off, expecting to see all the first responders head down Hamner Avenue towards there. And uh, when that didn't happen, at about they waited till about 3.30 in the afternoon, and then they decided to go ahead and hit the bank anyways. Let's talk about, again, an incredibly movie-esque scene in here where we have a uh, Deputy Chuck Hill and Andy Delgado. And you provide the backgrounds for this, and such vivid characters emerge in this story, and a lot of uh, um, vivid characters emerge. Law enforcement and on the other side, but much more in law enforcement, rich characters. Let's talk about these two guys and why they were... uh, right there across from the bank, doing what? Tell us about this and the reaction yeah, from it, these bank robbers. Sure. Um, and the, the third uh, the third Riverside County sh- uh, Sheriff's deputy patrolling uh, Norco that day was Glenn Belaski, and he's the first right. one to, uh, to encounter them. So it's uh, Andy Delgado, Chuck Hill, and, and Glenn Belaski. And, yeah, I do uh, – you know, one of the things that uh, really – interest me in this story, and I do take a lot of time to uh, paint the picture, is uh, the backgrounds of these uh, various law enforcement officers who became involved in this and kind of the impact it had afterwards. But, um, you know, uh, the, the bank robbery itself, um, and this is George, Russ, Chris, and Manny Delgado crashing into this bank in ski masks and camouflage, and uh, Billy Delgado is the getaway driver sitting outside in this van, that actually is a lot of drama that goes on in that bank, as as goes on with pretty much any takeover robbery, where they put everybody yeah. down on the floor. But um, you know, there's a lot of drama that unfolded inside there. But for the most part, they got in that bank and they got out in two and a half minutes. However, wow. when they were going in the bank in their camouflage and their uh, ski masks and rifles, they were spotted by a bank teller at a bank across the street. And it is that bank uh, teller who called the Riverside County Sheriff's to report a robbery at the bank across the street. Um, so uh, it took about two minutes before the uh, the dispatcher sent out the uh, 211 robbery in progress tone uh, for the Security Pacific Bank, 4th and Hamner at, in Norco. And at that time, um, Glenn Belaski, Deputy Glenn Belaski, just happened to be sitting at that intersection looking straight at that bank. So if you talk about some bad luck mixed in with some uh, rather unfortunate planning, um, that, that's where it came in, um, was the fact that Glenn Belaski was right outside that bank. And, um, and uh, so Glenn Belaski, you can hear him on the radio traffic, he uh, reports himself on scene in uh, less than 
two seconds after that uh, after that dispatch, and um, and uh, these are this is right as the bank robbers are coming out of the bank, um, so uh, Deputy Glumbelaski begins to take fire almost immediately. Um, as he takes the turn uh, just to cruise into the bank and um, and to see what's going on. And Belaski had so little time to really think through what he was getting himself into that he did not process that this was a 211 in progress as opposed to a 211 silent. And most mm-hmm. silent uh, alarms are, uh, you know, or, or, you know, alarms are, uh, are false alarms. Uh, nine out of ten of them are, um, but this was a confirmed robbery in progress, and um, and that's when uh, when Glenn Belaski came head to head with these bank robbers. You talk about including this. I know this is a bit of a a detour here for a second, but you talk about the prevalence of armed robbery, bank robbery in Los Angeles, uh, how often that actually happened, and also, um, yeah, tell us first about that. Sure. How commonplace um, is this? Yeah, um, Los Angeles for decades had been the uh, what the FBI called the bank robbery capital of the world, and um, one out of every four bank robberies in the United States takes place within the jurisdiction of the Los Angeles field office of the FBI, um, <clears throat> and the reason is mostly uh, freeways. You know, you can rob a bank. And you can jump on a freeway, and in five minutes you could be five miles away and cruising the side streets of a whole different police jurisdiction. Um, the golden rule of robbing banks in Los Angeles is rob a bank near a freeway. And again, George decided to rob his own bank, and it was seven miles away from the from the nearest freeway. Um, but uh, um, 1980 was really a the the sheer number of bank robberies. So Los Angeles had already established itself as the bank robbery capital of the world, but the sheer number of bank robberies was beginning to skyrocket, and most of that was because of drug abuse um, and the cocaine era. Um, when people got addicted, they needed money to feed that habit, and robbing a bank in Los Angeles was not all that difficult. Um, the vast majority are one-on-one robberies. That's one uh, one bank robber going to one teller, telling him, you know, slipping him a note that says, "Give me all your money," and then leaving the bank with two thousand, three thousand dollars, something like that. Um, <clears throat> clearly, uh, George and Chris were not driven. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. By addiction. And this was a completely different sort of robbery. This is a takeover robbery. And takeover robberies have the potential for uh, danger and... Um, uh, and and uh, casualties, and uh, they're the uh, they're the robberies that uh, really the FBI lose sleep over are these uh, takeover robberies. I'm glad you brought up the the freeway, um, the reason for all the bank robberies in Los Angeles, and also what their idea was. But because George picked his own bank, in terms of uh, the idea that it had easy access to a getaway. You talk about that assessment of Norco itself. Um, also, when that silent alarm went off and, and the police were alerted, 
there was a misdirect as well that just added to this incredible inadvertent diversion, um, even more yeah, so than some... the diversion they had originally planned. <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, there was some uh, bad luck for the bank as well. And j- j- again, just to put put the uh, the industry of banking I- in perspective, in 1980, um, this is a Friday afternoon and it's payday. And so uh, yeah. back in those days, people did not use um, did not use credit cards for nearly as much. And there uh, really were uh, ATMs were pretty much non-existent. And um, so. Uh, People would go in and they'd generally cash half their paycheck and walk out with cash on it. So banks carried a lot of cash. But as the day went on, the bank was also emptying itself out of cash, and they robbed this bank at 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, The bank itself uh, did not even have cameras in it. Uh, Most did, but this branch did not have any security cameras in it. One teller did manage to trigger the uh, silent alarm, but that the bank had been wired incorrectly, and that alarm went to the Corona Police Department. That's the neighboring town. The Corona Police Department dispatched uh, a robbery in progress to the Corona branch of the Security Pacific Bank. So there was a there was a, a certainly a delay there, um, and if it had not been for that bank teller across the street who had seen them go in and called the uh, the, the Riverside sheriffs and gave them the correct location, um, you know, the, the, none of what followed may have happened at all, and that might have been for, for the better for all involved as well. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, that that first alarm uh, went to the wrong city. Yeah. You talk about uh, uh, Belosky and then uh, Gary Keeter knowing that Belosky was in trouble, but part of this is also uh, the technology at the time in, turning, in terms of radios and also jurisdictions, different counties. Tell us about that situation in terms of technologically being able to communicate with each other. Yeah, um, uh, <clears throat> dispatcher Gary Keeter is kind of an interesting story. He was actually a patrolman who'd injured his knee and was uh, so assigned behind the dispatch mic. Um, and he is—he uh, did an absolutely incredible job um, during this uh, running gun battle that went on for uh, for an hour, um, and uh, just had so many moving parts. Um, and he—you hear his voice on the radio traffic. He is calm and cool, and filtering through so much information. Um, but here's uh, here's one of the problems that really plagued law enforcement at the time and still does to a certain extent. But um, in, and that's that uh, this um, this pursuit um, it started with a pitched firefight in front of the bank uh, between three sheriff's deputies and, and uh, five bank robbers in which um, you know people were wounded and, and one bank robber killed. And uh, then became a running gun battle through the suburban streets of Riverside County uh, onto a major highway that went into uh, um, San Bernardino County um, and then up into the mountains. So the, uh, the law enforcement agencies involved heavily were the Riverside County Sheriff's, San Bernardino County Sheriff's, and the California Highway Patrol, not to mention some other city agencies that, were, that were, came in and were involved. And uh, none of these guys could talk to each other, the different agencies. Um, there was, uh, the, there's an interagency system called Claymars, which was just beginning to be implemented. And there was only one uh, in which you could go to a different frequency and, and all talk to each other, but that was, did not really come into play until later on and even in a very limited sense. Uh, some patrol units had scanners, so they could pick up different frequencies, but they could not talk to those other uh, those other agencies. So when this became a uh, a, a 
uh, a pursuit with uh, up to 30, sometimes 40 uh, uh, law enforcement uh, vehicles involved. Um, you know, the, the, these guys could not talk to each other, nor uh, could some of them talk to the uh, the helicopter above, which was pursuing the uh, um, that was pursuing the, the the bank robbers, and that would prove to be uh, fatal later on in the uh, at the end of the pursuit. That inability for the uh, the lead patrol unit to be able to talk directly to that helicopter and receive reports from that helicopter as to where the truck was uh, that was uh, uh, with the bank robbers in front of it. Before we talk about this incredible pursuit, and before that, the, the complete change of uh, direction for these bank robbers, they had, with the diversion, the idea that they would have cold cars, they switch license plates, so that they'd be able to go into another vehicle after they stole this first vehicle. But that doesn't happen, and they can't go back to Miraloma, so this pursuit changes, um, and no one knows, and the, and the police certainly can't predict much of a direction, but they have their ideas, and, and it's interesting, all these sheriffs, again, and deputies, pardon me, that are involved in this pursuit, Let's first talk about how outgunned the police were at that time, because that's a big contributing factor to not only Jim Evans' death, but this entire thing that could have turned much, much worse. Yeah, certainly. Um, at that time, the uh, <clears throat> sheriff's deputies were still guarding the Wild West with the same weapons they had for 100 years, and that's a six-shooter and a Winchester shotgun. And uh, as you can see, that was no match for the weaponry that they were uh, about to encounter. And um, this uh, uh, this uh, confrontation between law enforcement and, and bank robbers, uh, as I noted, started immediately in front of the bank when Glenn Belaski came head-to-head -head with them. Um, and then soon Chuck Hill um, and Andy Delgado, the other two uh, deputies who were patrolling uh, Norco, came on scene. And uh, there was a pitched firefight in a crowded Southern California intersection at 3.30 in the afternoon on a Friday. And um, there were over 500 rounds fired. Blasky's vehicle was hit 46 times. Blasky was wounded in, uh, by bullet fragments or flying glass um, in five different places, including a a uh, shot to the elbow that uh, severed an artery, but Belaski did manage to get off four shotgun rounds, um, and Andy Delgado managed to discharge his uh, shotgun with ten, uh, um, 10 rounds, and they did inflict some damage. Um, uh, their, uh, the getaway driver, Billy Delgado, was uh, uh, shot in the back of the head with a shotgun pellet that paralyzed him, and the van uh, veered off course and crashed into a fence. Um, so the the police were effective with what they had, but uh, once the uh, once the pursuit got going after that, they really didn't stand a chance because uh, when Billy Delgado was killed, the van kind of rolled off to the side and they couldn't get Billy out of the seat, so they abandoned the van and uh, spread out into the intersection. They brought their uh, they left their. Uh, $20,000 that they'd gotten from the yeah. bank robbery, which was a terrible take. And, um, yeah. and they, uh, they offloaded uh, their duffel bags full of bombs and, uh, and uh, uh, ammunition and uh, brought their uh, rifles with them and uh, began to fan out into this intersection while uh, laying down heavy fire the entire time on, uh, on the three deputies there and, as I say, wounding, uh, significantly wounding Belaski. Um, but in general, yeah, they, there was a, um, uh, 
uh, the police were completely outgunned, especially because the bank robbers then commandeered a Ford F-250 pickup truck that was used, uh, that had been modified for uh, as a service vehicle, a heavy, heavy, uh, uh, heavy equipment uh, maintenance tr- truck. So it had fa- they fabricated a. Um, cabinets on the sides of it and they were filled with equipment um and tools and uh and then they they'd mounted acetylene and oxygen tanks on the back uh back on against the cab uh those big tall tanks and there's nothing uh nothing the police were shooting that would ever penetrate those so this was you had a uh, you then had uh, you had uh, Russ Harvin and George Smith in the back um, both have been wounded. George has been wounded pretty significantly. You had Manny Delgado sitting out the passenger window. He literally had his torso completely out the passenger window, and Chris Harvin driving. And all of the three guys were had uh, the, again these semi-automatic, high-powered rifles. So, for all intents and purposes, this was like a military uh, military vehicle in terms of its uh, its armor and as well as its firepower. Chris Harvin has taken over from Billy Delgado, the the driver that was shot in the back of the head. So, what do they decide to do, knowing this area? But what still, what is the decision that they do that police couldn't possibly predict um, where to go with this pursuit, and how is that an advantage to them? Uh, certainly. Um, so to set the scene back at the intersection, the van is abandoned. Billy Delgado is dying in the front seat, in the process of dying in the front seat, and uh, over 500 rounds have been fired. People are running for their lives uh, when they commandeer this uh, uh, at gunpoint, this, this truck I just mentioned. And they uh, first begin heading back to their home that they've, uh, you know, their compound, as you put it, their fortified uh, home in Mira Loma, which is about uh, about nine or ten miles away and uh they head up hamner avenue which is the busiest uh boulevard in uh in um in that area in norco and heads up towards miraloma and as they head north it starts to become more and more uh kind of rural there's uh kind of there's vineyards out there there's bean fields there's uh sheep grazing meadows and things like that but it's still a very populated uh area and uh as they begin to head towards their house um, they're really weaving through side streets, and they turn almost every block. Um, and so it's almost impossible for these pursuing units to predict where they're going to uh, come out. Uh, the radio traffic there are saying, okay, they're, they're, um, you know, they're headed this way on this street. Then now they're headed this way on this street. Now they're headed this way on another street. And uh, you know, trying to intercept them or set up a roadblock becomes almost impossible um, there is not a helicopter on them at that point. Riverside County Sheriff did not have a helicopter. They had a, uh, requested one from a from a nearby city, Riverside City um, PD, and um, that had not, that was not yet on the um, <clears throat> that, that had not yet engaged the pursuit. So what was happening is these police officers were flooding into the area, and the California Highway Patrol had begun to self dispatch off the freeways and were involved now and. Um, but they would suddenly come upon this truck with almost no warning. And these, you know, again, you have three guys firing high-powered rifles, and they were immediately being uh, hit um, with gunfire. There were numerous vehicles uh, struck by gunfire, including civilian vehicles. Um, they also rammed a few civilian vehicles. They pushed one out into an intersection, so they took that truck and just rammed them out of the intersection so they could get through the light. The next intersection, they rammed it, hit another car sideways. They T-boned it, sent it spinning. 
and uh, then they start weaving through these streets. And in, in the matter of, uh, uh, you know, t- about ten minutes, there was uh, an additional five uh, five people hit by gunfire, four deputies and uh, and a civilian. Um, by the time they uh, they got up to Miraloma, and then by the time uh, and then the the helicopter engaged them in Miraloma. So when they did finally get to their house, they uh, they really had no ability to uh, to stop there. I mean, they had a helicopter on them, and they still had uh, one California Highway Patrol unit and three deputies right uh, following through these uh, through these streets. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So what was the route they took? What was the idea where were they? They originally had an idea to escape if the bank robbery were successful. Now, what was their idea and what was their route? And again, yeah, what was the advantage to this route? Yeah, the 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 initial idea was to, as you mentioned, they had parked a couple cold cars, which were their personal vehicles with uh, with stolen plates on them, and they were going to dump the van and the hostage, who's still in the back, um, would you know, and uh, they would dump that the van, hop into those cars, head out to Las Vegas, and and uh, launder the money through the casinos there. Um, when uh, when they, by the time they uh, now now in the truck, by the time they got up to the coal cars, they had to uh, they had police officers. They were already encountering them. They'd been spotted. So Chris Harvin decided not to stop at the coal cars, and that's when they were headed towards their house. And uh, the advantage, of course, was weaving through those streets was that nobody could get a beat on them or set up a roadblock or um, otherwise prepare to encounter them. Um, and uh, you know they are in that at that point headed in the direction inadvertently headed in the direction of a of a freeway but the yeah the second destination was the house uh, itself so tell us about what happens with the again it's it's interesting you have all these deputies disabled their cars disabled by gunfire people um piggybacking on, on into other vehicles people going first in the line then dropping back there is warning too to drop back from these guys because of their weaponry is hitting targets uh, of a half a mile to a mile which is astonishing again there isn't communication with everyone tell us what happens with deputy jim evans um after uh, after weaving through the streets of a of a suburban riverside uh, county and uh deciding to abandon uh stopping at their house they they weaved around and they passed the house twice and then abandoned that idea um and then try, tried to actually commandeer a, a another vehicle which uh which failed but at that point they had reached the had, had reached the uh 
the freeway, the Pomona freeway. And um, the strategy at that point um, was to head up into the mountains above Los Angeles and to uh, then try to use the fact that they had this truck um, to lose the uh, the patrol vehicles, which are really you know sedans, and um, on the uh, on the rough dirt roads, and eventually disappear into the canyons. Um, so the first thing they did is they uh, they got on the Pomona Freeway and then onto Interstate 15, and uh, headed east into the mountains above Los Angeles, and uh, Los Angeles uh, and Riverside San Bernardino, and they crossed into the San Bernardino County line. So they've passed into the jurisdiction of the Riverside County Sheriff's. So and onto the freeway, which is the turf of the California Highway Patrol. So now you had Riverside still pursuing California Highway Patrol descending from all different directions, and then the uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff starting to flood onto the freeway at that point. And uh, that's where they are hitting uh, patrol vehicles from about a half a mile away. And soon the patrol uh, units, uh, the deputies and the CHP units, start to turn off their lights um, their uh, light bars because they were they realized they were being targeted. Uh, they could see the light bars. Um, Chris Harvin also begins to slow down to uh, um, at points to try to ambush these uh, these pursuing vehicles, draw them in close, hit the brakes, and have those guys fire on them from close range. Um, they throw out three fragmentation grenades on uh, Interstate 15 um, that pepper the pursuing police officers with, uh, with shrapnel. Um, this whole time they're hitting civilian cars as well, uh, semi-trucks, shooting them at close range, um, some in inadvertently, some inexplicably turning their guns on uh, civilians. So people are bailing off the freeway into the breakdown lane. Um, Trucks are swerving to get out of the way. It is absolute uh, chaos on this freeway. And uh, it's at this point that they turn their guns on a San Bernardino uh, County Sheriff's helicopter that's uh, about 800 feet above them. And George Smith puts a, a round from a 308 right through the belly of this helicopter. And it, uh, it immediately, the uh, electrical system and the radios catches, catches fire. And uh, luckily it's a uh, Vietnam uh, chopper pilot with tons of combat experience behind the uh, stick in that uh, helicopter and he manages to get it down to the ground before it uh, before it crashes and they are uh, and then a second helicopter quickly comes in and resumes the pursuit but the way they're headed is to the mountains of uh, above Los Angeles and they get off after about eight miles they get off at, uh, at Sierra Road and start to head up Lytle Creek um, and Lytle Creek is a place where uh, they were familiar. Um, it is a, it's a place where you can fire guns anywhere you want at that time. Um, and uh, that's where they had gone to practice with their new weapons. Um, they even threw a hand grenade down in the canyon to, make canyon to make sure they worked. That was a week before. So they're very familiar with this right. area. And um, you know, if, you know the, if you know the San Gabriel uh, National Forest and Mount Baldy in that area, these are very rugged mountains. Um, you know, they jut up to over 10,000 feet um, very rapidly. So these are very rough canyons. Um, and uh, when that pursuit, and it's, uh, you know, this is a, a two-lane road that starts as asphalt and then turns into um, turns into a dirt road. And again, a rough dirt road. So a lot of these cars are breaking down. As you say, ones that were hit with gunfire are bailing out and the uh, police officers and some are jumping out of one vehicle and getting into another one. So now yeah. there's, you know, some of them have two and even three officers in there. And um, <clears throat> you mentioned Jim Evans, um, and this is where on the on the I-15 is where Jim Evans, Deputy Riverside Deputy Jim Evans, uh, joins the pursuit. Um, 
And uh, I'll give you a little bit of background on Jim Evans. He's uh, older. Yeah. He's about 38 years old. He's a career military. Um, he is Green Beret, uh, highly decorated in Vietnam uh, combat missions. So he's a he's a senior guy. He joined the joined the river. He only joined the sheriff's department in about five years before, but he was certainly destined to move up the ranks. Just a wonderful human being, um, quiet. He's a Texan, so he's got that Texas drawl, really looked up to by the uh, by his fellow deputies. And, and uh, so Jim Evans is, is in uh, in one of the front cars in the pursuit as it heads up into this uh, very ominous landscape of the mountains. And... Uh... You talk about Mary too. You describe and and feature her in the story as well. She's a bus driver. It's uh, later in the evening. I don't think she's heard. She hasn't heard any news at all. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, Mary Evans. You know the, the uh, uh, Jim and Mary Evans is really a, a unique kind of love story. Um, as I say, uh, Jim Evans was a was a Texan. And uh, and military, and he moved to Riverside County um, uh, because he was familiar with it from being there in the military. Mary was a uh, a uh, Italian uh, Roman Catholic from Boston who ended up in Riverside because she loved horses and and uh, had come out at one point. Um, they uh, she had 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 a pretty rough life and she was a very tough woman. And when these two found each other, they they had really found the love of their lives. They were a perfect couple couple together. They both loved to ride horses, um, owned horses, and um, uh, it's kind of one of these things where at long last both of them had found the perfect person, and they'd been married about two yeah. years and had a uh, had a, uh, a son that was uh, um, about six uh, about eight weeks old um, at the time. And uh, Mary was a municipal bus driver, and again, you know, the times in which these things take place. Um, if uh excuse me if you didn't have the radio on uh and even then you might not have even known this was going on unless you encountered this uh crazy pursuit that was uh, unfolding and she was on a bus route at the time so she did not know her husband Jim Evans was in uh involved in anything because she didn't know this was going on yeah now back to this pursuit here we we talk about uh it it continues the next day because that's how dangerous this is, and they realize that with this ambush ability and and darkness as a cover, that they should regroup uh, and bring in another helicopter and bring in some more people and hunt and kill team. Tell us about this endeavor uh, the next day. Yeah, and, and and I'm sorry you asked me, and I didn't wrap up the <laughs> kind of wrap up the pursuit that day as it goes up into Lytle Creek. Um, <clears throat> Uh, there is a couple things that that have occurred. Number one, there is a uh, a San Bernardino deputy named uh, DJ McCarty who happens to be sitting in the station getting off a shift, and he starts to hear the radio traffic um, through the squawk box there, and um, and then uh, uh, um, he he decides he's going to start to put his uniform back on and maybe get out there. And then another uh, deputy. Uh, Jim McFerrin is out in the field, and he hears the helicopter be grounded, and he radios back to the uh, to the uh, station. He says, uh, "Get the AR." And what he meant was uh, there was the, the uh, there was a uh, M16, a, a uh, 
you know, a military M16 uh, rifle that they had confiscated from a drug dealer uh, in a pursuit. Drug dealer had thrown it out mm-hmm. the window on the freeway. And uh, that was the only high-powered rifle that either of those uh, departments had, was this one confiscated uh, M16 rifle. And uh, the military didn't want it back, so uh, it was sitting around in a sergeant's trunk of their car. And D.J. McCarty runs out. He grabs that weapon, and this is a fully automatic M16, uh, you know, rifle that they use in Vietnam, and uh, and two, uh, four magazines full of uh, ammunition. And he jumps in with McFerrin, and they start to try to make their way up to the front of the pursuit line. And they are radioing to other vehicles, you know, get out of our way. We have a, we have a, you know, we have a rifle here. And um, so they are starting to move up the pursuit line when this uh, pursuit uh, then goes on to a fire road, a very narrow fire road uh, that is uh, clean to the side of this mountain. And uh, Jim Evans is then in the lead. And by then, D.J. McCarty um, has gotten to number two in the pursuit line behind Evans. Uh, but Evans, again, because of the radio situation, does not know that there there is a there is a vehicle behind him that has that high-powered rifle that they're trying to bring to bear on the pursuit. There are about 40 police cars still there, winding, uh, still in the pursuit line as they head up this very treacherous fire road. And uh, what happens is when they get around a curve, um, the uh, the truck uh, encounters a washout in the road, and they have to. Um, they have to bring the pursuit to a, to a halt then. They can't go any farther. They jump out and they ambush the uh, pursuing police officers and, uh, and deputies. And um, I won't give away that. That's a very dramatic scene. Um, it is, uh, again, another ferocious firefight, this time 7,000 feet up uh, a mountainside. And, um, and uh, when it's over, uh, um, uh, again, Evans is dead, and um, the the uh, remaining four bank robbers uh, disappear into the canyons of Mount Baldy. They run up the fire road, they climb over the uh, the washout, and they uh, they um, they disappear in the canyons. By that time, it's 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 uh, you know it's it's um, uh, coming on five o'clock in the evening. There's a it's cold up there. The helicopters a cloud cover descending, so they, they're going to lose their helicopters soon. It's starting to get dark, and the the law enforcement decides they're just going to hunker down and start a massive manhunt the next day to uh, to round up these four escaped uh, bank robbers and uh, at this point uh, cop killers. That's and, right. Uh, this is it. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, and this this leads to uh, your question about putting together this manhunt, which turns into the largest manhunt in uh, California law enforcement history. Um, and they start to bring in um, specialized teams. There's uh, there's uh, there's uh, dog. There's a uh, search dogs. You know, sniffer dogs and deputies on horseback and uh, search, search and rescue teams. Um, they start to bring in helicopters. The military brings in uh, uh, Arctic parkas that some of the deputies put on. Um, it gets very cold that night, and it does. There's a dusting of snow and freezing rain. And um, uh, when they set off the, the next day, they're, um, <clears throat> they have SWAT teams up there. They have these tracker teams. And uh, what they brought in from uh, Los Angeles County were uh, what, what's known as the hunt-and-kill teams. And a hunt-and-kill yeah. team is, uh, is uh, two, um, uh, two SWAT members, one with a shotgun and one with a high-powered rifle. And they are then uh, accompanied by one, uh, one uh, deputy and, um, and one uh, uh, tracking team. 
and um, you can tell by the name that their their job is uh, you know they're they're not officially called the hunt and kill team, but they're uh, they're meant to um, you know to to be able to bring to locate suspects and if necessary have the firepower to uh, as they say neutralize that suspect. So there are the hunt and kill teams up there as well when they uh, start this massive manhunt the next day. Yeah, interesting. The next day, you say it's it's, it's incredibly cold, and these robbers, some of them awake. Russell awakes. Uh, George Smith awakes. He thought he might be dead because he had been hit uh, significantly and, and was bleeding. Who do the hunt yeah. and kill teams? Who do the police first encounter, and what does that person have to say once encountered? very interesting somebody is there to record yes um then when they had escaped up the fire road um uh they had split up uh the first to uh kind of go off the road and and down the side of the mountainside to hide was george smith he had been shot in the groin back in front of the bank with a with a shotgun pellet and had been uh twice and, and had been uh had been uh, bleeding out in the back of that truck, and he he, he fully expected that he was going to die um, because he he had lost so much blood. So he was weak. Um, he went about 200 yards down the mountainside, kind of hid behind a bush, and sat there through the night, and uh, it was just a miserable night. They were soaked through um, with freezing rain. He'd thrown away his rifle at this point. He just had a couple handguns on him, and George was kind of done. By the time, uh, he, as as you mentioned, he was waking up during the night and kind of looking up and certain times thought he was actually dead, um, you know, kind of, am I alive, am I dead? Um, and uh, the, first, uh, uh, the first person law enforcement uh, encounters is George Smith. And, um, and uh, the other two, as I said, Chris Harvin, Russ Harvin, Manny Delgado had all individually at some point gone over the, as they go over the side, off the fire road and down, down into the mountains in the canyons, but they'd gone separately. Um, so George, the next morning, George Smith um, is the first to be uh, found, and he really gives himself up. But he's a few hundred yards down this very treacherous mountainside, and it's going to, in his condition, it's going to take him a while to walk him down to where a helicopter can take him out. And um, uh, San Bernardino uh, sends a uh, homicide detective up the mountainside with a tape recorder to interrogate George Smith as they're bringing him down. And it's... Uh, it's very dramatic audio. Uh, you can hear the helicopter in the back, and uh, uh, um, Ross Dvorak, uh, homicide detective Ross Dvorak, is interviewing George Smith. And uh, first thing he tells him is, George, you realize you have a bullet in you. Um, you, you realize you may die, right, George? And George says, yeah. And, then, uh, and uh, so basically what Ross Dvorak has got him into is sort of a deathbed confessional. And Ross Dvorak honestly thought he might die before he gets him down this mountainside. He can mm -hmm. only go about... You know, 15 feet before he he they need to have him rest. He keeps saying he wants to go to sleep, and uh, but uh, he gets a rather stunning uh, confession and and full uh, accounting of the bank robbery and and the names of the other bank robbers. And George admits that he put the whole thing together, his idea, um, as they're uh, as they're going down that mountainside. And uh, in the end, George survives, uh, and um, a lot of that is uh, is used against them all in the uh, in the coming trial um so george yeah. is the first to to give up at about nine uh, eight thirty in the morning um <clears throat> russ had found his brother chris during the night 
uh, Chris had uh, had been uh, uh, um, had been shot in the back during the ambush um, up on the fire road. Uh, he um, he had he had about had it midway through the through the night and went ahead and started a fire. Just kind of you know the heck with it. If I if I get seen and caught, you know I'm not getting out of this anyways. Russell sees the fire and uh, and goes down the hillside and and meets up with his brother. And uh, as it becomes light and um, they uh, just decide they're going to start walking out of the canyon. And if they walk out of the canyon, great. Um, uh, but they fully expected that they would be captured at some point down the way. Um, so Chris has got the bullet in his back, and he is uh, coughing up blood. Russell Harvin is diabetic, and he has no insulin or food on him. And he has also taken a shotgun pellet underneath his scalp, uh, in the intersection in front of the bank, um, it had not penetrated the skull, but it was still underneath his uh, uh, underneath his scalp. Um, and uh, they are <clears throat> spotted and picked up. They had actually quite made it quite a ways out of Lytle Creek Canyon, and uh, but they were spotted and picked up um, and and gave up um, about 10:30 uh, in the morning. And that left right. Manny Delgado. Manny Delgado was the only one who had not been wounded. Uh, during the firefight, but he had seen his 17-year-old little brother die in front of him, or uh, you know, badly wounded and on his clearly on his way to death. He was paralyzed at the time mm -hmm. by the by the round, and um, you know, Man the thinking was Manny was probably not going to give himself up um, at this point. Is 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 his uh, 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 generally considered his state of mind, and uh, he ran the farthest up the fire road, and then began during the night making his way. Over uh, over mountaintops, uh, you know, ridge lines and things like that. And uh, when daylight came, he was under a he was uh, kind of at the crest of a ridge line. Again, we're talking seven thousand feet up in the mountains, eight thousand feet, I think, is around where he was, under some very thick brush, <clears throat> so thick you'd have to crawl on your belly to really uh, to to be able to penetrate it. And uh, he is uh, hunkered down there. Of course, he's got no food whatever water he's just squeezing out of his clothes to drink. Um, he is armed. He also has thrown away his uh, rifle, and he's armed with a, a thirty eight revolver. Um, the hunt and kill teams and the SWAT teams up there assume he has a high-powered rifle, but at that point he didn't. Um, and Manny Delgado gets, just by sh almost sheer luck, gets spotted by a helicopter um, when they see just a, a, a flash of blue from some, some gloves Manny was wearing for warmth uh, uh, that he'd used during the robbery, and um, they uh, signaled to a hunt and kill team, an L.A. County Sheriff's uh, hunt and kill team, uh, where he is. They hover down below him to to you know to cause such a racket. Um, you know they're they're using the rotor blades to part the brush. Um, of course, it's a huge amount of noise and spraying dirt all over him and everything to kind of distract him while this uh, hunt and kill team sneaks up. And um, when they get about 15 feet away. Uh, they yell for Manny to uh, freeze. Um, Manny looks over, kind of leans up, and uh, you know these guys are not trained to give a uh, uh, to give a, a fugitive, especially one who's already killed a police officer, um, any time. <laughs> they don't give him any breaks, yeah. and, and they immediately, uh, you know, they open fire on him, and they uh, they kill Manny Delgado. It's found out later that he killed himself. 
Yeah, there's a bit of a mystery about the death of Manny Delgado. As I say, these, this hunt and kill team came up, uh, one with a high-powered rifle, one with a shotgun. And when I say they didn't give them a break, they just, they're, they're not going to take any risk that this uh, no. that, uh, uh, fugitive is going to fire back at them. And when Manny Delgado hears them yell, he leans up. He's lying flat on his stomach at the time. He leans up kind of on his left, and they see he's got the gun in his hand. And uh, and they fire on him, but the autopsy later on uh, shows that Manny Delgado was killed from a round from his own gun, shot straight through his heart. And uh, there is kind of a uh, a poetry, if you will, about that. Um, you know, he just seen his little brother get killed, his little brother who he talked into talked into becoming part of this, and and uh, you yeah. know. Sure, he was brokenhearted, and there was uh, some rumors that went around that uh, maybe he had, uh, you know, just just killed himself. But um, it's more likely that he had fallen on the gun when the first round went through him, and the gun then discharged. But it, it, it was the cause of death. Um, in in the end, was a self-inflicted gunshot wound through the heart. Yeah, he would have been dead one way or another. Um, right away, you t- you have the fascinating aspect of that recorded confession from George Smith when he thought he was going to die. What's even more fascinating is when these characters are arrested and in prison, in jail, awaiting, and there's different responses now that there's the confession, but now that George realizes he's not going to die, and Chris uh, has a, a different attitude with investigators once he's arrested, uh, tell us about those people being questioned. And But first, tell us what both of their thoughts are, but especially George, once they are arrested, and concerning this whole revelation idea and end times. Yeah, they... Um... <clears throat> The day they are captured, the three surviving bank robbers, they're, of course, split up, and, and uh, we ha- still have the interrogation tapes on all of them. Um, Russell Harvin, is, uh, he, he, uh, he sounds utterly stunned to have found himself in this situation and is just saying, um, boy, you know, my parents are – Boy, are my parents going to be surprised, and needless to say, they were, and devastated. Um, he uh, also begins to just cough up information. You can hear he's, a, he's reluctant to. He's trying to hedge it. He's, he keeps saying he forgets things, but he does keep talking. Um, you know, uh, Russ is a guy who's easily talked into things, and he was not um, much of a challenge for these interrogators. Plus, they'd been pretty much caught red-handed. Uh, <clears throat> Chris Harvin... Also, uh, also gives out details. Um, Chris is a little bit. Uh, it, it turns out more during the trial. A little, a guy who's kind of a, in it to protect himself. And um, and uh, but he uh, he tells about uh, and he he's also saying I can't believe I got talked into this. It's such a stupid idea. I knew this was a stupid idea. I knew it wouldn't work. Um, and uh, he says you know George did this and George gave peer pressure on me to do it. Um, George is helicoptered to a to a um, uh, hospital, and um, George just just kind of freely talks. He's he's his usual very soft spoken, um, intelligent self, um, and uh, he also uh, you know he just says I, I put it all together. I did this. I told these guys to do this. I told them where to go. I picked the bank and everything. Um, 
So they all uh, confess, and at that point, they don't really, uh, neither of them mention anything about their beliefs out of what propelled them to do it. It's only later when they go to trial um, that they begin to uh, to bring it up and almost use it as a strategy, you know, if it, rather than just it just being a, um, uh, you know, a, a greedy bank robbery, um, they kind of assign it a higher purpose, you know, that uh, that they believe that the end of the world was coming, um, and one of the just uh, and that they they were doing it because they needed to save those who they loved, so it was almost a, um, you know, a, a higher purpose to it. One of the most unusual things is that two weeks after they are um, captured is when Mount St. Helens volcano blows up in, yeah. in Washington state. And both George and Chris see that, you know, that <laughs> catastrophic event, um, yeah. you know, a lot of yeah. people, a lot of people die, but mostly just a, a, a natural, uh, natural phenomenon, natural disaster event. Um, you know, they, they think, well, here we go. Uh, you know, yeah. George is thinking it's the first sign. Chris Harvin, you know, okay, the Jupiter effect isn't there at that time, but Chris had always thought it would be volcanic activity and seismic uh, earthquakes and things along the Pacific Rim that would that would uh, throw California into chaos and destruction. So it's it's kind oh. of an unusual uh, unusual coincidence. You talk about their attorneys, and of course, there are people that are opposed to the death penalty because this is potential for a death penalty. With this, um, what's interesting is the who do they blame? Uh, they have to blame someone. So who do they blame in this? Well, um, yeah, you know, uh, the trial was what was the most unexpected thing in this entire uh, entire book and entire event. Um, I, I grew up in Southern California. I knew when this event happened. It was absolutely astonishing to me. I mean, we've really seen nothing like it. Uh, before um, right. and uh, uh, the trial, you get this whole new cast of characters come in. These very, uh, these very interesting and, and uh, defense attorneys, um, and, and it's it's a, it's a death penalty trial. And uh, it's not a matter of whether these guys are going to be found not guilty. It's whether they're going to be sentenced to death. Um, but it is still a very dramatic trial, and it starts to go off the rails. Uh, almost immediately with a jury selection that lasted six months, which is absolutely unheard of. And um, But this trial just becomes a, a fascinating. Um, y- you know, uh, the, uh, the probably the most unusual development comes uh, about uh, uh, 12 months into this trial, um, one of the more unusual, when uh, Chris Harvin's defense attorney, Chris Harvin and his defense attorney, to try suddenly uh, – throw a, a Hail Mary defense into this in which uh, they say that uh, Chris was never even there for the bank robbery. In fact, Chris had tried yeah. to talk everybody out uh, out of mm-hmm. doing this um, the morning of, and that uh, there was a, uh, a, a mysterious character named Jerry Cohen, who was actually the guy mistaken for Chris Harvin in the bank, and it was Jerry Cohen who had uh, forced them all to do this. And Chris had bailed out at the last second, so he claimed, um, and testifies to, and was running up Hamner Avenue to, to just to get yeah. back home when all of a sudden the yellow truck came and Manny Del- and he says Manny Delgado and Jerry Cohen pointed a uh, a gun at me and forced me to drive the truck and I didn't want to do it but yeah. that's why I'm up on the mountain but I wasn't part of this um, 
So this Jerry Cohn, who of course has never been found, um, is uh, is the one they blame. And the other is that they start to put the blame on Manny Delgado. Uh, Manny's not there to defend himself. Manny, by all accounts, was uh, he and Russell Harvin probably the most prolific shooters in the entire pursuit. So they've been spotted. Manny has been sitting outside the cab for most of the pursuit, uh, out the passenger window. And um, uh, the real... Uh, the the what was going to get them the death penalty was the uh, the death of Jim Evans, Deputy Jim Evans, and uh, yeah. uh, and so then there then there becomes another person who they start to blame on all this uh, when it comes to the death of Jim Evans, and that is uh, they claim they put on a friendly fire defense and they claim that D.J. McCarty, the, the San Bernardino deputy who had the M16 rifle that he had never used before in his life and did bring it to bear during that ambush. Uh, and was in the vehicle right behind Jim Evans. So when they all jumped out of their uh, out of their vehicles, they say that D.J. McCarty opened fire with a gun he'd never used before and shot Jim Evans, who was uh, ten feet in front of him. And uh, so right. they uh, so D.J. McCarty not only has the uh, you know the traumatic uh, experience of watching another deputy killed in front of him, the terror of almost being killed himself. I mean, he he had been shot once. And uh, he was taking heavy gunfire before he was able to figure out how to use this gun properly. Um, now he has the, uh, you know, the whispers and everything of uh, of other cops saying, well, you know, they say that D.J. McCarty killed uh, killed Jim Evans. So um, it was a really terrible experience all around for, for D.J. McCarty, who was a really young young deputy at the time. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the blame goes to uh, this mysterious character, Jerry Cohn, uh, most of the time, they're blaming Manny Delgado for being the one who uh, who fight, who's doing most of the shooting, and then the other's just saying, "No, no, that was Manny. No, that was Manny who was doing that." And the other is uh, DJ McCarty. So that was the the basis of a lot of their defense. Yes, it's uh, also interesting when you talk about uh, DJ McCarty, also, and the. Um, the idea that that uh, Evans was shot and that these uh, these perpetrators were all putting it on each other and this uh, mysterious Jerry Cohen, but part of the defense of George Smith, uh, they as per customary they hire an investigator to assist the defense lawyer, especially in a, a, a capital case like this. Again, and just another fascinating twist to this story. Um, we don't want to go too far into it, but what happens with this investigator named Painter? Yeah, I, I won't go too far into it uh, for obvious reasons. Um, the most fascinating uh, uh, characters, if you will, I mean, I, I never lose sight that these are real human beings on, on both sides, mm-hmm. but if you will, the characters are, are the defense team of George Smith, um, and that is a, uh, a an attorney, a real pit bull of an attorney, both in in looks and in uh, and an attitude named Clayton Adams, who uh, who is fighting you know to save George Smith's life, and he is assigned a investigator from the public defender's office named Jeannie Painter, and Jeannie Painter is 33 years old. Um, she's a veteran investigator. Uh, she has done hundreds of felonies before. She's considered extremely good. 
uh, also very uh, you know t- carries heavy workloads. And investigators are, you know, needless to say, they're just absolutely critical to a trial. They're they're out there gathering evidence. They're out there interviewing people. They're uh, orchestrating all, everything in the courtroom for the uh, for the defense attorney. And uh, Jeannie Painter is uh, say 33 years old, and she's she's very attractive. There's a blonde hair, and uh, you know a real head turner around the courthouse, which is mostly men in, in that era. Um, sure. And uh, uh, as this trial moves ahead, and it get, the trial was moved out of uh, Riverside County down to San Diego County, um, there begins this relationship that develops between uh, Jeannie Painter and George Wayne Smith, and a lot of it had to do with uh, you know where Jeannie Painter was in her life, and she was a she was still a, as much of a veteran as she was. She was still a young woman. She was now transferred away from her family and and under incredible stress and incredible workload. And George Smith is a very compelling. Um, it's a very compelling, articulate guy, and um, and uh, so this relationship, and that's a kind word for it, begins to develop between the two of them, and uh, and then soon turns into a lot of a. Uh, um, misconduct on the part of Jeannie Painter as she sort of falls under the uh, the spell of George Smith. Um, and there's accusations of jailhouse sexual misconduct and uh, smuggling drugs into the prison uh, or into the jail, um, bringing in naked photographs of herself for George. And uh, yeah. uh, so Jeannie Painter really takes a beating in this um, uh, and uh, really suffers um, under kind of a from this relationship that uh, that she's developed with George Smith. Yes, incredible. And it, you know, it, threatened, it threatens to derail this entire trial. I mean, in this trial, sure. is now months. I mean, in the end, it took 16 months. This trial and um, between jury selection and this was late in the game that this this bombshell revelation comes out. And when the the jail says Jeannie Painter is not allowed to visit George Smith in jail anymore, we won't have this going on. And and it almost creates a mistrial in this uh, at this late stage but the judge is just desperate not to have this trial end after 12 months or 14 months so he manages to to keep it to keep Jeannie Painter involved and keep the keep the trial moving it's one of the most fascinating parts of this book is the trial like you say but what Chris Harvin taking the stand and weaving this incredible story fable but it also hurts his fellow uh, cohorts, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. Um, in the process, uh, to, to save you the, to save you, I explain it a little bit, and, and I do describe why the mechanics of the legal system and, and trials um, uh, kind of opens. Once Chris takes the stand and he begins to tell his own story, he then opens the door for evidence that had previously been excluded to now be right. included including mm-hmm. his statement um his confession or or you know statement to police and uh as well as the other guys which had actually been ruled out up to that point um wow. because uh it implicated the others you can implicate yourself in a confession but they were being tried together all three of these uh, uh Russ Chris and George were being tried together and um <clears throat> uh um yeah um uh what, so in the in the, uh, the 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 prosecutor Jay Hanks just completely tears apart Chris Harvin on the on the stand because it's just a it's a preposterous story and Chris is trying to act like he's just this innocent victim and uh, never shot a gun tried to stop this from happening and um, but he but he Chris has opened up the door so um, 
Jay Hanks just dismantles him, and in the process, Chris implicates Russ. He uh, effectively puts a gun in Russ's hands at the, uh, as well as George at the ambush site um, during his testimony um, because his confession he had mentioned it, and so uh, you know these are guys are trying to uh, trying to blame it on Manny or on DJ McCarty, and uh, you, you know some of them even George saying I was too weak I couldn't even fire, um, others say I didn't even have a gun. Russ, uh, Chris is saying I was shot in the back and. True enough, but so he didn't do it. But uh, and, but it was a very big deal when uh, when uh, Chris Harvin for throwing this hail mary defense, this crazy defense, then ends up implicating, uh, as they say, his best buddy George Smith and his little brother, um, putting a gun in their hand that might have gotten them the death penalty. Yes, very interesting. Um, needless to say, what is the outcome? What do jurors decide? And what's the sentence? Well, yeah, they were um, uh, they were found guilty on 46 major felonies, including kidnapping, explosives, uh, 24 counts of attempted murder on a police officer. They were actually, uh, you know, found guilty of the murder of Jim Evans as well as uh, Billy Delgado under the felony murder rule because they started the firefight in which Billy Delgado got killed. Um, so they had 46 major counts, and then it went into the penalty phase. And one of the more unusual things in the penalty phase is uh, Clayton Adams had uh, had George Smith uh, named a co-counsel uh, in it, and it allowed George Smith to actually question some of his um, some of his witnesses, or at least one of them, uh, during the penalty phase. But it also allowed George Smith to give a closing argument. Uh, but only if George would, would refer to himself in the third person. And what, so that made it a kind of a, a creepy aspect wow. to it with George Smith staying up there. And this is the first time anybody, any of the jurors had heard George Smith. Um, and what it did is allowed George Smith to kind of make a statement about himself without being cross-examined. Um, so it was a bit of a legal trick. And it's, uh, it's quite a speech George gives, and it is uh, overflowing with uh, very uh, – uh, with with um, religious prophecy and um, very uh, scholarly interpretations of the Bible, which frankly lose a lot of the juries juror along the way. But George is basically saying George Smith would never kill another human being. George Smith believes in the grace of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. George Smith would never do this, and um, it's a very odd moment. And uh, in the end, they are uh, they are sentenced to life without parole, uh, rather than the death penalty. And um, a reporter comments who had covered the t entire trial comments that he thought it was sort of like Stockholm syndrome you know when you spend that amount of time in a room as the jury had in the same room with three human beings no matter what they've done you're just simply not going to be sentencing them to death so they did uh, get found uh, uh, they, they were sentenced to li uh, life without parole and that's um, that is where they remain today um, just, just a quick thing, Dan. I'm sure I, people have commented before. Well, you're telling so much of the story. You know, how do you? Why do you tell so much of the book? And I got to tell you, and, and I, I hope you'll agree, is there is so much detail that goes yeah. into these just fascinating details, and so much more that happened during that pursuit that I haven't mentioned. That um, uh, no one has ever felt like I gave away the book um, by, by even by kind of telling what the major events are in it. No, I, I, I think it just prompts somebody to want to read the entire thing, to catch everything, that the, to grab everything and to 
understand everything that we've spoken about excitedly, both of us, because it's such a fascinating, exciting tale. Um, the pursuit is incredible. The the these brave officers, um, the, the citizens running uh, uh, amok, the the effect of this trial. So all of these things, and we hadn't even touched on just one little thing that again it was interesting about um, a George Smith's father being dismissed from or quitting the police force after he encountered um, resistance when he was being a uh, an honest cop and found corruption. And again, just another little thing that added to George Smith's, um, it seemed it seemed in conflict with his character that George Smith would end up where he did end up. So it's very, very fascinating how the background and everything that you brought into the story uh, factors into this incredible in, this incredible tale. Well, you know, um, one of the elements of the 70s, of course, was this uh, um, what ranged from distrust or adversarial kind of a um, attitude towards uh, police officers. You know, some some people hated them, you know, thought them uh, yeah. uh, the foot soldiers of the status quo. And uh, George and Chris certainly didn't hate them, but they didn't trust them. And George had that, uh, yeah, that experience in his family where his father uh, was at Casper, Wyoming, and arrested uh, two police officers who he caught in the middle of the night robbing a uh, store on Main Street. And uh, when he brought him back to the department, the, uh, he's the one who got a you know, they let him go and said, what the hell are you doing arresting these guys? And he found really kind of deep corruption, and it was very disillusioning. Um, his father had always wanted to be a cop. So that that was kind of circulating in the family, this this idea that you can't trust policemen, uh, which made George and Chris even want to arm up more because they felt their attitude was, well, cops kill people if they find them. You know, if, if they catch us, they're going to try to kill us. So, uh you know, they didn't set out to kill any cops, but they certainly uh certainly tried once they uh once they had these uh once once the firefight began. Yes. I wanna thank you very much, Peter, for coming on and talking about Norcoweti, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. It's been actually uh, an absolute privilege and, and a thrill for me to talk to you and share this book with other people, the uh, the listener. For those people that might want to look at this, uh, is there a website or Facebook page uh, quickly that you could refer us to? Yeah, certainly. And thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. Um, my website is peterhoulahan.com, H-O-U-L-A-H-A-N. Um, but really, the book is available everywhere. There's an audio book um, that's out now. Uh, as well, um, was released at the same time. So all the places you normally buy books, you can find this one. Um, and uh, so so it's, it's, it's out there in the world and available. Thank you very much, uh, Peter Houlihan. Good night. Thanks, Dan. Good night.